Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible today, that's okay. The words of the text will be on the screen and you can follow along. We've been making our way through Colossians, and I promise you we will get through it. Uh, We are in Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. The title of the message today is Dressed for Every Occasion. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that I may have shared before. Throughout all of my childhood and, and teenage years, many of you know I was a Duke basketball fan. I know it's hard to admit, but we all have to own up to the sins of our past, don't we? I could take you to my mom and daddy's house and show you the spot where I was sitting in their living room when, when Christian Leitner hit his legendary shot in 1992 to take the Blue Devils to the Final Four and then on to the National Championship. And from that moment on, as a youngster, I was hooked. I went to Duke basketball camp in the summer with a friend of mine. I had Blue Devil posters on my wall. I even owned a piece of the Cameron Indoor Stadium, the floor where they played on. I I had a piece of that floor, so I had it pretty bad. But when it came to be a high school senior and it was the time to start applying to colleges, there was really only one place in my mind to go, and that was to Durham. But somewhere along the way, a guidance counselor convinced me that I needed to have a backup plan. And so I thought, well, I'll send my application to UNC just in case. I had good grades. I was uh, an athlete. I was involved in leadership. So I thought, surely I've done enough to get in. Well, I was rather shocked when those applications came back, and I got turned down by Duke but accepted by UNC. And so now all of a sudden I was faced with the reality of being a, a student at a school where I was taught my whole life to hate that school. And uh, for UNC State fans, sorry, there was just no way I was going to NC State. I didn't care. I was not going to the Wolfpack. So my struggle was so intense that on the day that I moved into my dorm room, I actually had Duke clothing with me in my bags. Now, my student ID said that officially I was a Tar Heel, but really in my heart, I hadn't made that transition yet. I was, I was still a dookie. Well, on the second day I was on campus, I strolled down to Woolen Gym, big, like eight courts where you could play basketball any time of the day. I strolled down to Woolen Gym. I was going to play some pickup basketball, and uh, when I showed up, I was wearing a pair of Duke basketball shorts had my student ID. I gave it to the security guard at the front gate. He looked at my student ID. He looked at what I was wearing. He took me a once glance up and down. And then he said this. He said, son, if you want to play basketball on this court, you need to go back to your dorm and change. Take those shorts off because this is Dean Smith's house. (laughs) So I did what he said. I went back to my dorm. I changed my shorts. And I have never worn anything Duke ever since. Now, I tell you that story because as ridiculous as it was for me to hold on to the clothes of my former team, it's even worse a fashion faux pas for a a Christian to continue to sport the character of the old sinful ways. In Colossians chapter 3, 
Paul has been writing to us at length about the ultimate wardrobe change that happens when we come to Christ. Our old sinful habits and thought patterns have to be shed like old rags. And in their place we put on the righteousness of Christ, the character of Christ. However, in that transition it doesn't mean that it's going to be smooth just as I struggled to let go of my, my Duke fandom, we may struggle to take off the, the old man and to put on the new man in Christ. But according to the Bible, the Bible says that our identity has changed. That we are officially, if we've been born again, saved, put our faith and trust in Christ, we are officially members of Christ's body, and so therefore we must dress accordingly. We must put on the character that is befitting the Savior for whose name we stand. Now in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, we began with the negative. That's where Paul told us what to remove. And we looked at that passage a couple weeks ago. We continue now in verse 12 through 17 with the positive side of that command where Paul now tells us what to put on. Now in today's message, what we're going to focus on is learning how to be a well-dressed Christian for every occasion. And so today we're going to look at what I call the wardrobe of Christ. Read with me in verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And, he says in verse 15, the end, be thankful. The wardrobe of Christ. Now by my count, as I go down that list, Paul lists nine Christian virtues that we are to prayerfully dress ourselves in each day. Now, there's a similar set of characteristics you'll find over in the book of Galatians in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, where you read there of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. So I have a chart. Notice the chart coming up where you see the wardrobe of Christ on one side, the fruit of the Spirit on the other, and you can see the attributes there listed in each passage in the wardrobe of Christ, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, and thankfulness. And then over in Galatians 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So there's a lot of overlap there, but also a few differences. Now, as you study this list that Paul has given us here in Colossians 3, what you begin to soon realize is there's only one person who ever walked the earth who perfectly fulfilled all of these attributes. And it's certainly not Derek McCarson. It certainly wasn't Billy Graham or, or some other great saint of God. There's only one, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus flawlessly embodied each one of those characteristics that we are told to emulate. And isn't that the goal of the Christian life? Uh, it's sanctification. That is being set apart uh, to be each day becoming more and more like Christ 
and less like ourselves. As John the Baptist prayed, he said, I must decrease so that Jesus may increase. Like the old preacher I heard say, I'm, I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I'm going to be, but praise God, I'm not what I used to be. Amen? You ought to look different, think different, talk different, act different than who you were before Jesus Christ came into your life. There has to be a change, and that's what the wardrobe of Christ is all about. A, a, a change in our character as Christ transforms us from the inside out. Now, several years ago, there was a, an author named John Malloy. He wrote a book called Dressed for Success. And it kind of became a fashion guidebook for many people who were trying to be successful in the corporate ladder, climb the corporate ladder and, and be successful. And Malloy's basic advice centered on one premise. If you're in doubt, always dress like your boss. And really, that's essentially Paul's most basic command here in this passage uh, Jesus is my boss, He's the Lord, He's the Master, He's my Savior, and therefore I need to dress like Him, I need to look like Him, not in uh, earthly standards, not talking about robe and sandals and so on, but in the character of who I am. Listen to what John Phillips, a great Bible scholar, noted. He said, quote, The robes we receive at conversion are not like our Sunday's best that we bring out once a week to impress our church friends. These robes that Paul speaks of never wear out. They are for all occasions. They never get sold, never get out of shape, never fade or sag. We are to wear them everywhere, all the time, at work, at home, at school, at play, at church, and to town. When folks ask, where did you get such lovely attire? We can reply to them, from Jesus my Lord. And that's the flavor of the passage here. Now, just as we have different clothes for different purposes and different seasons, if you study this Christian's wardrobe here, you can see how the qualities that are listed apply to various areas of life. And as I studied this passage this week, what I saw was that the wardrobe of the Christian breaks down into four separate categories. First thing we need to put on in this list are garments for a Christ-like ministry. Number one, garments for a Christ-like ministry. Notice what he says here in verse 12, these two words. He says, now put on compassionate hearts and kindness. Now these two traits are like peas in a pod, aren't they? You can't have one without the other. Compassion is the ability to identify with the hurt, with the pain, with the plight of others and a willingness to do something about it, to step out and to love them as Christ would. And then there's kindness here. Kindness is what draws people in like a warm campfire on a cold night. Kindness is essential if we're going to win some to Christ. As the old saying goes, we must be winsome if we want to win some. Right? Now, there's some church members I know who look like they've been baptized in lemon juice and weaned on a dill pickle. And they need a good dose of compassion and kindness. And by their attitude, they're not really drawing anybody to Jesus Christ. But friend, if you've been touched by the Savior, if you've been indwelt by His Spirit, there will be compassion. There, there will be kindness in your heart. 
You may have to work on it, but God will change you. Remember Jesus' parable about that good Samaritan? There was both kindness and compassion at work. Look, remember what Luke 10 said there? Look at it on the screen. Luke 10, 33 and 34. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And if you keep reading, he actually says that he paid for the bill. That's kindness. That's compassion. I thought about Mother Teresa this week as I read this passage. You know, she was, did her ministry among the poorest of the poor there in Calcutta, India. She's probably the epitome of compassion. Now, the story is told that there was a news reporter who was following her around for a day, taking notes, kind of studying her life because he was going to write an article about her. And so it started early when she rose and took care of some orphans and fixed them some food. And then she went to the bedside of a dying man and uh, cleaned him and, and washed him and bathed him there on the bedside. And then uh, the reporter followed her out on the street where she found a, a leper laying there in the filth and in the gutter. And Mother Teresa cleaned the maggots off of this man's wounds. And after the reporter watched that, he said to Mother Teresa, he said, I wouldn't do what you do for a million dollars. And Mother Teresa replied with a wry smile. She said, and I wouldn't either. That's compassion. That's kindness, right? Compassion is costly. Mercy is messy. When did we ever think in the church that we could just... Uh, compassion was a noun. No, it's, it's a verb. The gospel calls us to get involved in the mess and the muck and the mire and the problems of this world. We can't just sit here in the four uh, walls of this church and, and love the world. No, we have to get out in it. We have to roll up our sleeves and, and get involved in the problems and the poverty and the mess and, and the trash and the people that the world has thrown to the side. And you know what? When you and I offer compassion and kindness the way the gospel calls us to, with no strings attached, you know what? We just might be the answer to somebody's prayer. They might have been on the edge of giving up and, and giving in, but God sent you and God sent me into their life. Maybe it was a divine appointment, and you might see somebody broken down or somebody in need. Friend, listen, you don't have to pray about it. Just do it. Just step in and love them if they don't look like you, if they smell bad, if they're not the, of the same belief system as you are. Throw all that to the side and just love them like Jesus would in that moment. You see, when you help like that, you become Jesus to them. Most folks will never read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they'll read your life. And if your life looks like Him, they'll be drawn by compassion and kindness. We need garments for a Christ-like ministry. And then we need, number two, garments for a Christ-like mindset. A Christ-like mindset. Notice the qualities that he lists also in verse 12. Put on humility, meekness, and patience. By the way, be careful if you pray for patience. You may not like the way that God gives it to you. And then he also says in verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called in one body. This is the 
mindset of Christ. Now let's start with this list. Humility, what is that? Humility is the ability to put the needs of others before yourself despite your rank or your position. C.S. Lewis gave a great definition. He said, quote, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, there is a popular myth that in order to be humble and to be meek, that means you have to be limp-wristed, you have to be spineless, and you essentially sign up to be the doormat of the world. Friend, nothing could be further from the truth as I read the Word of God. There's no weakness in meekness. And a truly humble person, if you're ever around a truly humble person, they don't have to feel like they have to prove themselves to somebody else because their identity is secure in the person of Christ. And by the way, the Jesus who flung furniture down the steps of the temple, the Jesus who cast out the demons, the Jesus who stood toe to toe with the Pharisees and said, you're from your father Satan. That Jesus, that strong Jesus, was also the Jesus who knelt down and said, let the little children come unto me. The strongest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, and yet humble enough for a child to approach. Jesus is our standard. Listen to what Paul wrote about the, the mindset, the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8, He says this, Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. I read a biography a couple years ago about Abraham Lincoln. There's a great story in that biography that I thought was a tremendous illustration of biblical humility. It said that during the war, the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often visited the, the hospitals to cheer the wounded. And on one occasion, he saw a poor fellow who was on his deathbed. And President Lincoln walked up to this man who was dying and he said, Is there anything I can do for you, son? And through gasp and through his last breaths, this man, he didn't recognize who he was talking to, this soldier. He said, will you please help me write a letter to my mother? He was unrecognized by the soldier, but the story goes that Lincoln sat there by the, the bed of this dying soldier and listened to what the youth told him to write down. And he wrote this letter. When the young man was too weak to go on, Lincoln signed it. And then he put this postscript. Written for your son by Abe Lincoln. He didn't even put president. He didn't even put commander-in-chief. And then it said that he held the hand of the soldier until he expired. Now think about that. The most powerful man in the country, the commander-in-chief, and yet he stooped to serve the lowest private. In the kingdom of God, that's the way things are inverted. Greatness is measured by meekness. To go up, you go down. That's the measure of humility. Then also, Paul talked about here, if I hope you notice it in verse 15, about peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And boy, haven't we seen a need for that through 2020 and 2021 where the real pandemic, I believe, was fear. 
Fear driving people to madness. Now, peace of mind, that's a rare article of clothing in this panic-driven world. Now, the Greek word that's used here for rule is an interesting one. It refers to an umpire who makes decisions in an athletic event. So when he says, let the peace of Christ rule, he uses the athletic term umpire. Now, you've been to the ball game. You see the umpire. They are behind the plate as the pitcher pitches. Uh, he calls balls and strikes. And what this passage is saying is that let Jesus Christ be the king in your life. Let him be the umpire. Let him call the shots. And he'll keep your mind from going out of bounds into fear, into panic, into worry. By the way, peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of Christ in the midst of trouble. And I'm thankful today that I've got a good shepherd. I'm thankful today that uh, I can go to bed at night uh, with peace in my heart. I'm thankful today that I don't have to fear the grave because I've got the peace that passes all understanding that the world didn't give and the world can't take away. It comes from knowing the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw this on a church sign, and I, bl I believe it said it all. Look at this, what I saw on a church sign, and I wrote it down, and I've kept it ever since. No Jesus, no peace. N-O Jesus, N-O peace. And then the next line, no Jesus, no peace. K-N-O-W Jesus, K-N-O-W peace. Doesn't that say it all right there? What did Jesus say in John 14 and verse 27? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Thank God today that we can have the peace of knowing Christ and He will rule in our lives. I like the story that Pastor Roy Zook tells in one of his books. It happened during World War II. It was in Europe, in, in Great Britain, where they were having the, the blitz bombing, where the German Luftwaffe would come over it at night and, and drop thousands of pounds of bombs on the British people. And it's said in that story that many of the people there in London each night would retreat. They would, were forced to go into the underground bunkers and ride out the bombing because they were afraid of, of the bombs falling on their head. But there was one old Christian lady, an old Spencer lady, who was dead set and determined that she wasn't going to live in any bunker. She was going to stay in her house. One morning as she arose, she came out from the street and noticed all the devastation around her. Houses bombed, potholes in the road, smoke and, and all kinds of panic. And one of the soldiers came along and saw the old lady. And he said, did, 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 did you stay in your home last night? Why aren't you in your bunker. No lady turned to that soldier and she said, Well, Sonny, my God neither sleeps nor slumbers and there's no need for both of us to stay awake. So I slept pretty good last night because I know the Lord. <laughs> That's a pretty good attitude to have, isn't it? Peace that the world can't give and that the devil can't take away. Thank God for the peace that He offers us. There's also another one listed here in verse 12. Patience. Let me tell you a funny story of something that happened yesterday. By the way, the word in the text, patient, means literally in the Greek to take a long time to boil. A long time to where it takes you to reach your limit before you spill out in anger. 
But yesterday, I'll tell you one on myself. I was planting my garden yesterday. And I had planted a row of okra. And I had to go back and get some tool that I had forgotten. And I, I picked my plow back up again and I started plowing. And I got back to where I was and I had four rows laid out. All my rows laid out, I was going to do two rows of beans and two rows of corn. And I got those things planted. And then when I got back to my plow that I was going to cover them up, I got to that first row of corn. I said, wait a second, something's not right here. Started counting my rows. I was off. And what I had done is I had planted okra there. And then I had plowed it up and planted corn over top of it. It's be okay, Clifford. We'll still have something to eat. Don't worry. <laughs> well, it's still in the ground, brother. So I got looking at that and I said, oh my gosh, what have I done? I got this whole row of corn seed right out here. I've already spread it. What am I going to do? I'm going to tell you what, I have a champion wife. I said, I know who to call. So I went inside, she was sewing. And I said, Caitlin, I said, come out here, I need your help. I didn't even tell her what I needed her to do. I brought her down there and I showed her, I said, we got to pick up all this corn. She said, what? I said, you've got to help me. It'll take all day if I do it. So she got down there in the dirt with me, and we went down that row and picked up each little kernel of corn. And as we were doing that, I thought, this is what God is teaching me. This is patience. And he's also showing me love. If you have a woman who will get down in the rows with you and pick up every kernel of corn, you got a woman who will love you. So you'll be, you might be surprised how God will help you put on some patience, right? We need garments for a Christ-like mercy as well. Not only a Christ-like mindset and a Christ-like ministry. How about Christ-like mercy? Listen to what verse 13 says. You just thought you were doing good until this point. Listen, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other... As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Did you read that last part? You must forgive. Think of Jesus on the cross. What did He say there? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23 and verse 44. As His blood is spilling out, as the spikes have been driven, as His life is ebbing away, Father, forgive them. At his worst moment, Jesus showed the greatest act of mercy to the least deserving. And as I said, you may have gone down this list and been able to puff out your chest and feel pretty good about yourself. Yeah, I've, I'm compassionate. Yeah, I'm kind most of the time as long as I've had my coffee. Yeah, I'm working on patience. I'm getting there, Brother Derek. I've got peace. But then you get to this one. Let me tell you something. This one will test you more than any other. Just ask my wife. <laughs> She's had to forgive me a lot. But notice here, there's nothing more difficult than releasing those who have harmed us. And at the same time, there's nothing more Christ-like. I'm not saying it's easy. But I am saying this, with Jesus, it's possible. With God, there's grace available he can help heal the wounds of the past, help you let go. I know what some of you are thinking, but Derek, you don't know what's been done to me. 
You don't know what they said to me. You don't know how many times they did it. You don't know how long I've struggled. I get all that. I'm not diminishing it. But what I'm saying is that with Christ, you can forgive. C.S. Lewis, we go back to him and his wisdom. Listen to what he said. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. What has Christ forgiven you? And therefore, if we understand that, all the darkness, all the shame, all the stuff in our past that we would not want to be broadcast, Christ forgave us of the deepest, darkest, dirtiest sin. And He says, if you understand the gospel and you've been changed by the gospel, you can do this. You must, He says. So forgiveness flows from the cross to us and others because forgiven people are forgiving people. Ah, there's just not a lot of amens today. I understand this is hard. Because as you look at this, you say, i got a long way to go. I have not arrived. God help me. But I wrote this down. I heard an old preacher say it one time. I thought it was so great. Forgiveness is like letting go of a rattlesnake. The choice benefits the snake, but you even more. <laughs> right? Some of you still holding on to a rattlesnake. You got bit, you got hurt. Somebody messed with you, and you're still holding on to that snake. I'm telling you, you need to let it go. Let, let Christ pull the venom out. Take away that spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness and give you a new heart. Forgiveness is like letting go of that rattlesnake. I love what Lewis Smeads wrote. He said this. He said, quote, To forgive is to put down your 50-pound pack after a 10-mile climb up the mountain. Boy, carrying around that grudge is heavy, isn't it? Carrying around that pain wears you down, don't it? He says, To forgive is to fall into a chair after a marathon. Think of the relief that you could have. To forgive is to reach back into your hurting past and recreate it in your memory so that you can begin again. He said it is to ride the crest of love's highest wave. To forgive, he said, is to set the prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Don't stay in that prison. Don't hold on to that rattlesnake. Take that old garment off and say, I'm clothing myself today in the forgiveness that God has given me. There was an incredible story a few years ago. It was in the newspaper. It happened in a New York State courtroom. It was presided by Judge Albert Tomei. The defendant was a callous young man who had been proven guilty for gunning down another youth in a gang murder. Seems like we hear about it every day. This, this young man was about to be sentenced. And the victim's mother, the, the boy who had been shot and killed, his mama and his grandmama were there. And they both had a chance to give an impact statement before the sentencing. The mother first rose and she said, I just want you to know, by the power of Jesus Christ, I'm forgiving you today. And then the grandmother stood up. And listen to what this grandmother said to this gang member. She said, I've sat in this trial for two weeks and tried to hate you. I wanted to hate you, but God wouldn't let me. 
She said, I want to write you in prison. I want to be your friend. And she said, I want to help you find the love of Jesus so that He can forgive you just as He has forgiven me. The judge who was at his bench saw all this transpire in his courtroom. Listen to what he said. He said the simple words of that grandmother melted the hard heart of the murderer. For the first time since the trial began, he said the defendant's eyes lost their laser force and appeared to surrender to the life force that only a mother can generate. Pure love, nurturing, unconditional love. After the grandmother finished, she said, I looked at the defendant, or he said, I looked at the defendant, his head was hanging low. There was no more swagger, no more hardness, no more stare. All I saw was a young man who had been crushed under the weight of God's love. That's the power of forgiveness. The world has no answer for it. You know why? Because forgiveness isn't natural. It's supernatural. You and I can't do it in our flesh. But God working in us, when we clothe ourselves in the robes in the new life of Christ, God working in us can help us to do it. And that's how we respond to evil according to Christ. When someone hurts you, you don't curse it. You don't rehearse it. You don't nurse it. But you forgive and you reverse it. And so we need garments for Christ-like mercy and a Christ-like mindset and a Christ-like ministry. But then verse 14, and I'm done today, we need garments for a Christ-like motive. A reason to do what we do. Verse 14, look at this. And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And now abide faith, hope, and love these things, but the greatest of these is what? Love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And Jesus said in John 13 and verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It didn't say how well you know the Bible. It didn't say how much you give, your level of faith, your church attendance. They'll know if you're truly... Mine by love. Amen. Paul used the highest word possible here in the Greek language for love. There's several words in the Greek language for love. There's eros. That's romantic type love. The love that a husband and a wife have for each other. There's phileo. That's brotherly love. That's the love that I might have for somebody in my family or a relative. And then there's agape. That's the word he uses here. Agape love, that's God-like, that's self-sacrificing love that knows no limits. He says, don't, don't leave home without this. Love is the belt that binds it all together. It's, it's what you tuck this whole garment into. Don't forget love. Because love is, love is compassion. When you see that drugged out person under the bridge. And you think, why don't they grow up and get a job? Love comes in and says, yeah, but, 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 but Jesus died for them. Love is having that kind word back to a rude co-worker who chews your head off. 
and every part of you just wants to rear back and give them what for. But the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 no. A soft answer turns away wrath. Love is humbly doing the dirty job that nobody wants to do. I don't want to clean the toilet around church. I don't want to sleep the floor. I don't want to work with kids. I don't want to do this and do that. But love compels me because I know a Savior who went up a hill with a cross on His back for me. Therefore, I ought to get down and do the job that I don't want to do. But because of my Savior, I'll sign up for another tour of duty, Pastor. I'll do it. Love. Love is when you're in bed at night and you've had a fight and your wife is looking at the wall that way and your turn and you're looking at the wall that way and you might as well be a hundred miles apart I ain't saying nothing I'm waiting for her to make the move hey I've been there before and so have you turning over and saying honey I was wrong here's how I was wrong I'm prideful. I didn't want to do that. And honey, honey, will you forgive me? That's love. Love, despite what the world says, is not blindly accepting all lifestyles and moralities. Love is standing on the truth of the Word of God. It's not lowering the standard. It's going to that person who you know is lost and dying. And love will compel you to say, I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. But I can't compromise this. Sin is still sin. You need Jesus. And to a world that hates the truth, love, according to that definition, looks like hate. But the gospel of Christ compels us to stand on the word of God and say to a world that doesn't understand love, a world that is intoxicated with lust, and say, this is love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember Jesus and that encounter that he had with that woman who was caught in adultery? Remember that story? John 8, there the Pharisees bring this sinful woman to Jesus and they cast her at his feet. By the way, they only bring the woman. And if I understand it right, it takes two to tango. Where's the man? They only bring the woman there and they cast him in front of Jesus. And they say, Jesus, we caught her in the act of adultery according to the law. Moses says we're to stone her. What do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus, by the way. Jesus did not answer the question directly, did he? He ducked it. In fact, he ducked it by stooping down and he got down in the dirt. And the Gospel of John says that he started to scribble something with his finger in the dirt. We don't know what he was writing. Maybe it was the names of the mistresses of those men who were holding stones in the circle. I don't know. But whatever it was, it's been lost with the sands of time. And it was so convicting and so heart-wrenching that the Bible says when they saw what Jesus wrote in the dirt, that they dropped their stones and they walked away. But Jesus didn't just sweep this woman's sin under the rug, did He? He got down. He picked her up. That's what love does. Love, love picks you up when you're thrown away. 
Love picks you up when you're shamed. Love picks you up when you're just broken in pieces. Jesus picked up this shameful woman and He said, where's your, where's your accusers? She said, I don't see any. He said, I don't accuse you either. But go and sin no more. You know how He could say that? Because He was on His way to the cross where He was going to die a bloody death for that woman's shameful lifestyle and for your sin and for my sin. And thank God today I've got a judge who can look at my record and say, case dismissed based on the, the purchase price of Jesus Christ. And those stones of accusation, they all have to fall to the ground with a thud. Our guilt is removed by His grace. Hallelujah for a stooping Savior. He got down in the dirt and wrote. He got down and washed dirty feet. Uh, he stooped down at Gethsemane and said, Lord, not my will, but your will. And then he stooped down and he picked up that old rugged cross and he walked up the hill of Calvary for you and for me. And friend, that's what love is all about. Agape love that will take sin to the cross. He did it for her. He picked up this old sinful broken woman and he'll pick you up too. He'll dust you off and say, you ain't supposed to live like that. You get out and you live for me. So what would living for Christ look like today? What would that look like in your life and mine? I read this story and I just think that this Perfectly encapsulated. I read it on CBN. Notice the headline. I just felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. Man stops dramatic suicide in progress. Leads jumper to Christ. This is what love looks like. According to the article, One Cold Night, this man pictured here, Colin Dozer, a 31-year-old man, was driving home from work when he noticed an abandoned car on the side of the road on the Lesnar Bridge in Virginia Beach. As he passed by the car, he said, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and tell me, stop and investigate. When Colin walked onto the bridge, he saw a druggie, Jacob Palmer. He was getting ready to jump to his death. What would you have done? Here's what Colin did. Hey, hey, man, don't do it. Jesus loves you. He's got a plan for your life. But no matter what he said, the druggie, Jacob Palmer, wouldn't respond. He continued. He said, man, I've gone through a lot of hard times in my life, and I tell you, the only thing that's got me through is, is Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, don't jump. He loves you. Step back from that ledge. About that time, the police showed up. Palmer, who was high on meth, grew more and more agitated. Leave me alone. He pulled out a gun. I've got a gun. If you come after me, I'm taking you with me. Colin Dozer said he felt like his time was now or never to make his move. You'll appreciate this, Teddy. The former college wrestler stepped up on the railing grabbed the gun and the druggie and wrestled him down to the ground. The police then jumped on top and subdued him. 
Now you'd say, wow, that's a great story, but that's not the end. You see, Colin Dozer loved this man as Christ loved him, and he stayed in contact with Jacob Palmer while he was in drug rehab. He kept sharing the gospel with him. He kept going to him and saying, Jesus loves you, wants to change your life. Jesus loves you. Uh, you can climb out of this. Jesus loves you. He's got a plan. Finally, the day came when Colin Dozer led his druggy friend, Jacob Palmer, to Jesus Christ. Later, he attended his baptism on the beach. This is a picture taken from the article. The city of Virginia Beach honored Colin's heroic action with a life-saving award. And at the ceremony, the mayor said this. He said, this is an incredible citizen who put his life on the line to save another. And you know, that's a godly thing. That's how you know you put on the, the clothes of Jesus Christ. When you live in such a way that the sinful world has to step back and say, huh, maybe there is something to this Jesus thing. How are you doing today? I don't know about you, but I got work to do. Maybe you don't know Christ in the way that I've spoken of today. And you're still in the rags of your sin. You're still lost and undone. You can come to know Him today. You can be clothed in His mercy and His grace. His righteousness can become yours. You can have a, a new life and an eternal life by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ as Savior. Our musicians are coming and we want to stand for a time of invitation as we, as we wrap up today. I wonder, is there anybody today who needs to respond to this message?